You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you haven't heard of Axe Church before, we are a church in Camas, Washington. You can check us out at axecamas.org. You can see what we're about and what we're up to. We're glad you're listening today and hope you enjoy the sermon. Agatha Christie created a character. Okay? Guy named Hercule Poirot, okay? Belgian guy, detective. There were 70 episodes on TV, I think the BBC or whatever, uh, of, of these adventures of Hercule Poirot. He was this uh, man, this kind of strange little detective with a little mustache, and he drank little uh, things of liqueur, and it's just a very interesting character. And the guy who played him <clears throat> is a guy by the name of David Suchet. Now, if you have ever seen... Poirot, any of those episodes, you know that David Suchet did an excellent job of just being that character. And he's just so fun to watch. But a little prior to when he started making those, he was a famous actor in England. And in about 1986, he was in a hotel in Seattle, Washington, in a bathtub. He's about my age, so incredibly young and handsome, um, something like that at the time. This is 1986, and, and, and Mr. Suchet had been brought up with no religion, none at all. His father, he was Jewish by birth. His father was agnostic, and his mother was an Anglican, um, but she didn't really raise him religious, so he just wasn't brought up with any kind of religion. He was not a believer. Sure, he had thought about religion over his life, but here he is at 40 years old, and he's sitting in that bathtub completely non-religious, completely a non-believer, and he's thinking about his grandfather, who he had loved, who died when he was 18 years old. And he was thinking about how he still feels like his grandfather isn't gone, like that he's dead, but he isn't gone. He's thinking, but I don't believe in the afterlife. And so there's an inconsistency here, and he's just kind of searching, looking for meaning. And he felt this desire to read the Bible, for some reason. So he went straight out and bought one. He went out and bought this Bible and he started reading it. Starting, he read the book of Romans and he, and he starts reading through the Bible and it completely changed his life. Suchet became a follower of Jesus and in the Bible he found what he had been looking for. He found Jesus Christ and he began to follow him. David Suchet described Jesus as my best friend. And as an actor, that's a wonderful thing to have. A wonderful person to have by your side day and night. My very, very best friend. And sometimes in the back of my mind, even when I'm performing, I know he's with me. I know he's holding my hand. The Bible is David Suchet's favorite book. In fact, you can actually listen to him reading the Bible because he's recorded, I think, a pretty popular audio version of the Bible. Uh, but it's so much more than just a book. The Bible is where David Suchet found Jesus. It's where Mr. Suchet found God, and he claims that that changed his life. Now, we're in a series called Dear Skeptic, where we're kind of dealing with questions that, that people ask or that they struggle with, they wrestle with. And a couple of years ago, we did a message on Scripture, on the reliability and the authority of Scripture. We talked about whether the Bible we have now is accurate as to what was originally written down, 
right? Were the things that they wrote then, the things that we have now, whether there were lots of mistakes in the Bible, uh, how we know they got the right books in the Bible, and and questions like that. If you want to uh, see or listen to that sermon, that's on SeekingSkeptics.com. Towards the bottom of the page, it's called uh, Skeptics Forum Number 4, The Reliability of Scripture, something like that. This time, we're going to talk about Scripture again, but we're going to work through a different question. And here's the question. How do we know that the Bible is inspired by God when it was written by people? How do we know that the Bible is inspired by God when it is written by people? Now, for me, the power of the Bible was very clear from a young age. When I was young, uh, I I went to church. My dad was a pastor then. Some of you know he still is now. He's sleeping in the back if you want to look back there. I wish that I could laugh. Um, (laughs) My brother and my sister and I, we would all go to church. We'd go on Sunday morning. We'd go on Sunday night. We'd go on Wednesday night. And we were there one night. I think it was a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. I don't remember. This was a long time ago. Uh, I I was young at the time. And my brother and I were running around outside. We're playing. And for some reason, we have our Bibles in our hands because my parents would not let us ever not have a Bible in our I'm just kidding. That's not. I don't know why we had our Bibles in our hands. It was weird. But I guess, you know, we had been in church, so we had our Bibles. And, and we're running around, we're playing, and, and, I, and I run up, and I jump, like, on my brother's back. I'm not sure what I was doing. I was messing with him or whatever, but I wasn't trying to hurt him. But apparently, you, you may remember, this is your hardcover Bibles. And as you know, the covers are really hard, and the corners, they're pretty sharp right? And so I jumped up and accidentally put the corner into the back of his arm, and it punched through his arm. Okay. Oh, stop saying, oh, he's such a wuss. Anyway, (laughs) I punched through the back of his arm. It went through the skin. I didn't know that this had happened. We were just playing and I had no idea. But apparently when you ram a Bible into the skin of the back of someone's arm, they can become very mad, very angry. Um, And that that is what he became. But I didn't know that. The second it happened, I thought, we're just playing around and whatever. So I'm, you know, sitting there thinking, having no idea that I've put a Bible through the back of my brother's arm. And meanwhile, he's thinking, I am going to horribly injure you. Um, I'm going to try to hurt you badly. So he turns around. It's like, you know, I jump at him, ah, you know, I did. That's what it looked like, I'm sure. And I, and, I, and I do the thing, and he's there, and he's, ah, you know. So he gets hurt, and the th- he's thinking, he's got his Bible in his hand. He's thinking to himself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end my brother here. And so he turns around, okay? He's got the Bible in his hand. And, he's, and he was definitely a bit more natural athlete than I was, okay? And, and, and he turns around with his Bible. And we're talking Randy Johnson, right? I mean, just all the way. I'm just standing over here like this. I got, hey, we're playing with Bibles. I don't know, right? And he turns around all the way back. And, I mean, he comes full throw at the middle of my face with that Bible. And I didn't know he was mad, so I had no idea it was coming. So I didn't put my hands up. Nothing, right? So that Bible comes at me, end over end, probably turned about once or twice. It was only like two feet away. And I mean, it hits me square. Boom. Bridge of the nose, okay? Bridge of the nose. Hits me square. Now, I would like to tell you that I did not cry. After he tried to destroy my looks, she did not succeed at doing. Um, I'd like to say I didn't cry, but I 
when a Bible hits you at 110 miles an hour in the middle of your face, you cry. And I didn't just cry, I screamed like a baby. And I went around holding my nose like this. I'm sure I embarrassed my parents. It's all I ever did as a kid. (laughs) Next day, I had two huge black eyes, right? I mean, swollen shut black eyes. But here's the worst part of it, okay? The worst part is that that night later, I got spanked. After this happened, you couldn't tell yet that it was going to be as bad as it was. You know, I got spanked for accidentally hurting my brother. He was scot-free for completely purposely trying to end my life. Now you have some, yeah, some idea why I became a lawyer. I want some justice in this world. So anyway, the point is, the Bible can be powerful. My brother can be a turd. All right, that's good. Um, But I still love him. The Bible is powerful for real, right? Not just in that way. It's powerful. It's true, right? That's what we say. But is it true? I mean, there's a real question. We're talking about people, right? The words of the Bible are written down by people, and people often make mistakes. For example, there's this question that was posed on a computer screen. If you look at the screens here, it says, can you read it? Are you sure you want to exist as opposed to exit? No idea what happens if you push no, but I wouldn't. I mean, I would be like, no, you would never exit, right, because you don't want to stop existing. Or this guy here uh, who decided to get a huge tattoo all the way up his inner arm telling the world that he has no regerts. Maybe one. Regurt. Or this uh, ominous sign in the bathroom, employees must wash hands before living. Because as we all know, you haven't lived until you've washed your hands in a filthy bathroom. <laughs> but people make mistakes, right? People make mistakes. And why would the Bible be any different? I think that's a fair question. But here is the thing. The Bible is different in a couple ways. One is we don't think that the people who wrote the Bible were writing the same way the person who tattooed that guy's arm was writing. We believe that the people who wrote the Bible were chosen by God to write those words and were inspired by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. Now, what does it mean to be inspired by God? Well, the Bible uses the term God breathed. God breathed. That God inspired, that God breathed the scripture. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good action. It's like God breathed the word through his servants, through the people who wrote the bottle. Not bo- bottle? Bible. Not that these people were robots. That's not what he's talking about. God doesn't need robots. He uses people like you and me, but they were inspired. Inspiration. Sounds kind of like respiration, breathing, right? God putting into them what they needed to write. And if they were obedient to him and listening to the Holy Spirit, then they were able to be used with their regular old writing. This wasn't like gold tablets and they were floating in the air. These were guys regular writing with their regular utensils, writing these things down and God inspiring them in the same way the Holy Spirit works through us now. He worked through the writers of the Bible then. He did so to reveal his own word to us. That's what the Bible is. That's what we believe it is. But some people think that because people were involved, 
that they must have brought in their own negative opinions, their own negative personal issues into the writing, and therefore the Bible's not true or the Bible's not trustworthy or something like that. Now, there's a guy named Greg Kokel. Uh, who's an an apologetics guy, he wrote a book called Tactics. And in this book, he asks some interesting questions for the person who has this issue. Hey, look, people brought their things, and it was written by people. It can't be true. And this is one of some of the things he says. Do you have any books in your library or on your Kindle or Audible or whatever? Do you have any books there? Yeah, sure. Hopefully we have some books. Now, of all those books, how many of them were written by people? I'm, I'm guessing all of them. If you have one that was written by something other than a person, I would like to see it. Now, the next question is, do any of those books contain truth? Is there any truth in any of those books? Well, I would hope that there's some, right? I'd hope that there's some truth. Do people always make mistakes when they write? Is it possible to write without making mistakes? Well, sure. People don't always make mistakes. The, the bathroom sign that we saw that said, wash hands before living, wouldn't be funny if the other 9,900,000 of them didn't say, wash hands before leaving, right? In other words, most people had to get it right for it to be funny that somebody got it wrong. Most of the time, we can do things accurately and correctly. Now, the last question you have to ask yourself is, do I believe in God? Because if I believe in God, and God is all-powerful, then certainly God is capable of using an obedient servant to write down the things that he wants to get out to us. Right? If you believe in God, it shouldn't be that hard to believe that God could inspire human beings to not put in their own biases and their own opinions and and make mistakes and whatever, that they could actually put down what he wanted them to put down. Right? That's easy to believe in if you believe in God. So the real question isn't, oh, the Bible was written by people. The real question is, do you believe in God? Because if you believe in God, you believe that he would want to reveal himself to us and that if he wanted to, he could do it effectively. That's an easy place to go, right? People get things correct when they're writing all the time, and they're not even God-breathed. They're not even God-breathed. We don't say for every book that comes out, we're not like, hey, that can't be true. It was written by a person. That's not what we do. We just assume books are written by people, and we, and we assess them on whether they're true or not. In the case of the Bible, we have good reason to believe it's true, and we have good reason to believe that it was inspired by God, god breathe. Now, if you think about it, if God cares about you and me, which is what the Bible says, if he really does, he would want to reveal himself to us. He would want us to know who he is, what he expects of us, how much he loves us, and so on. Now, he does this through nature. We get to see it in that way, but he also does it through his word and through personal revelation. Where you're just in relationship with him, and he's letting you know what he thinks about you. Okay, but the Bible is an obvious thing that God would use. And if God would use it, he would know how to make it perfect. He would know how to make it perfect. Now think about this. The Bible is not just like this single narrative book. It's not just one book. It's actually 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40-plus writers in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and is completely harmonious from the beginning to the end. Okay, now that's complicated. 66 different books written at different times by different people in different professions in different places of the world over 1,500 years in three different languages. And yet the harmony from the beginning to the end is fascinating, complex, and amazing. Now I've written one book. Thank you, Mom, for reading that. Um, I wish that was just a joke. Um, no, no. 
I've written one book by one person in one language at one time, and it's probably not even harmonious from beginning to end. The Bible, you've seen how big of a book it is. That's why some of you are scared to read it, I think, and we can kind of get like, oh, there's so much there. It's huge. And yet every word from the beginning to the end flows in a perfect, in a perfect harmony. Now that is complicated. How do you coordinate that kind of harmony with that many variables? Well, you don't. You don't. Humans don't do that. It's only God who can do that. Now, if that's not enough, if that's not enough for you, how about fulfilled prophecy? Okay, people can write books, but people rarely predict the future accurately. If they did, we would have, you know, everyone would make money on the stock market, we'd all win the lottery, all that kind of stuff, right? People don't usually predict the future accurately, or if they do, it's a lucky guess. But in the Bible, you have tons and tons and tons of prophecies that are predicted here, and then hundreds of later, years later come true to the letter. Now, there's a guy named Peter Stoner, who was, yeah, that's kind of a funny name, I'll give you that who was chairman of the Mathematics and Astronomy Department at Pasadena City College and the chairman of the Science Division at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, okay? So you're talking uber nerd. Total super math nerd, like probably wore Star Trek t-shirts, no offense, Glenn, but (laughs) nerd, right? This guy knows his math. And he wrote a book, and in part of that book, he took the time to calculate the odds of just eight of the prophecies of Jesus Christ, that were written about Jesus Christ, happening by chance. Uh, So he wrote a book, right? Part of this book, he calculates the odds of these prophecies. He just took eight prophecies about Jesus Christ and calculated the odds of those eight things happening randomly by chance, right, of them being right about one person randomly by chance. Now, there's a guy named Dr. Harold Hartseer. He was an officer of the American Scientific Affiliation. He wrote a the for the book, and he said, look, the book and the findings and the math have been carefully reviewed by his organization, and that the mathematical analysis is what he says. The mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability, which are thoroughly sound and that Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. So the math is right. These are the eight prophecies he chose. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. A messenger will prepare the way for the Messiah. The Messiah will enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. The Messiah will be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands. The Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The betrayal money will be used to purchase a potter's field. The Messiah will remain silent while he is afflicted. The Messiah will die young. I'm sorry, the Messiah will die by having his hands and feet pierced. Okay, all of these prophecies, these eight prophecies, are hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born. Hundreds of years these things were said. And he says, what are the odds? What are the odds that all eight of these would be true about one man randomly? The number he came up with was 1 in 10 to the 17th, or the number you see on the screen, okay? For you math nerds, 1 in 100 quadrillion, okay? 1 in 100 quadrillion. Now, your odds of winning the Mega Millions this week, as you may know, it's gone up to $1.6 billion, okay? Your odds of winning that, 
buying a ticket, just random numbers, and winning that are 1 in 302,575,350. Now, I want you to think about this. Just think about this. If my math is right, and I used a calculator, you are 330,496,189 times more likely to win the 1.6 billion in the mega millions this week than the Bible was likely to get those eight prophecies correct randomly. Those are some pretty serious numbers. This is how Stoner illustrated the numbers. He said, imagine being in Texas. Now, Texas is big. Just ask them. They'll tell you. Okay? I have basically driven all the way across Texas before. You, want, you think this sermon's boring. Go drive across Texas, okay? And a lot of it is just flat. I mean, if your dog ran away, you could watch him for three days. When you look really, really hard like this, you can see the back of your head. That's how flat it is, okay? It says, imagine taking a silver dollar. Now, I don't have a silver dollar with me because I'm a pastor. Um, no, I didn't have one. I would have brought one in. But imagine taking a silver dollar. You all know what a silver dollar looks like, right? You take a marker and you put a check mark on that silver dollar. Now you mix it in with a bunch of other silver dollars. How many silver dollars? Enough to cover the entire state of Texas. Knee high in silver dollars. Okay? The whole state, humongous state, up to your knee in silver dollars. And you have one in there that's got a check mark on it. Then I put a blindfold. I say, Hunter, come here. I put a blindfold on Hunter, and I say, walk into Texas somewhere, pick out one silver dollar, and the chance of him picking the one out with a check mark on it are the chances of these eight prophecies coming true about the Messiah. Here's the thing that's really crazy. He chose eight to do this math, but there are 108 that came true, that were predicted and came true about Jesus Christ. Now, I'm no math major, but if you are a math major, you should be wiping your little foggy glasses off and shaking your pocket protector <laughs> over this. I'm just kidding about making fun of me. I love math. Of course, that probably doesn't make you think they're not nerds. My wife is a math teacher, and she's definitely not nerdy. Um, and so, no, listen, if you understand numbers, if you understand math, you understand that it is simply impossible it is impossible for the Bible to have accurately foretold the future in the way that it has. And I'm just talking about the, the, the ones about Jesus. There are ones about what would happen with Judaism. There are ones about what would happen later in the future with, with different kingdoms and Alexander the Great and all, these, and all this crazy stuff. I just, I just picked a few. And you can see that the odds are astronomical against the Bible being made up. Okay? There are also the miracles that happen in the Bible that were attested to by hundreds of eyewitnesses. Hundreds. We have to understand that our faith, our faith as followers of Christ, is not simply in random people who wrote some stuff down in these books that we now call the Bible. That's not what it's in. It's in the historically, factually, actually risen Christ, the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead was witnessed by over 500 people, many of whom were alive to attest to that fact when the Gospels in the Bible were written, that you could have gone and asked them, did you see this? And they could have said, no, I didn't see that, or yes, I did. These were factual things. 
The New Testament Gospels are about facts, historical, eyewitness historical facts. This is what it says in Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also... Having had, a perfect under, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. Second Peter 1.16, For we did not cunningly devise, follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The writers of the word considered the Bible to be inspired by God. The writers considered it, but not only them. You know who else considered it to be inspired by God? Jesus Christ considered it to be inspired by God. The one who rose from the dead, according to the scriptures and all his eyewitnesses, and proved he was God, also believed the word of God was inspired. He believed it was true. He quoted it. He attested that the Old Testament scripture was all about him. This is what he says in John 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Of me. The scriptures are about Jesus. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible is reliable. Now, clearly, God is powerful enough to use those people willing to be obedient to him to write the words that he wanted them to write. Clearly, he's powerful enough to do that. And those words would be, God breathed. God breathed. Now, one more thing. As a lawyer, well, i got more than one more thing in the sermon. Don't start getting that excited. One more thing about that. As a lawyer, it's hard for me to ignore what we attorneys would call another clear indicator of veracity which is, we talk that way so we can get paid more, but the truth is all that means, it's a fancy way of saying that there's another way of knowing that the writers were telling the truth. There's another way of knowing. Now, you've all probably seen a court case on TV, right? And one of the lawyers will stand up during the case and yell, Objection, Your Honor! And the judge will say, Sustained or overruled or, or whatever, right? Now, we object because what we're trying to do is we believe that the piece of testimony that's about to be offered or that's been offered violates the rules of evidence, the kinds of things that are allowed to be said in court. That's why we object. Now, one of the rules of evidence is that hearsay is not allowed in court. Excuse me, in court. My goodness. Hearsay is when you testify that someone else said something, right? Not, not that day, not in court, but somewhere outside of court, somewhere someone else said something. So imagine this, you know, a person comes up, to, you know, the lawyer comes up, hey, what, uh, Mr. Robinson, what did the gentleman say on that day? And I say, I definitely heard him say he had no regrets, right? <laughs> the other lawyer is going to say, objection, hearsay, because I said something that the person said outside of court somewhere else, it's called hearsay. Now, one of the reasons that, that hearsay is not allowed in court is because the person who supposedly said the thing is not necessarily there to testify about whether they said that or not, right? And so the truthfulness of what the person said is not very certain. But there are exceptions to the hearsay rule. 
And the reason there are some exceptions is because there are some things that make the statement, the hearsay statement, so likely to be true that it's allowed in even though it's hearsay. Okay? One of those exceptions is called a statement against interest. A statement against interest. Now, Rule 804B3A, statement against interest, is a statement that a reasonable person in the declarant's position would have made only if the person believed it to be true. When made, because because when made, it was so contrary to the declarant's interest. Let me simplify that. Basically, if you say things that make you look bad, we assume that they're true because people don't like to say things that make them look bad. Right? If you say something against your interest, we generally think that that in, in the court, we found that we think that when people say things like that, they're much more likely to be true. Now, did the writers of Scripture make statements against their interest? Yeah. They did. How about when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's like, listen, I'm, I'm sorrowful unto death here. These are his best, best friends. He's up, I'm sorrowful unto death. i got to go over here and pray. Will you just stay awake with me just for a minute while I go pray? Jesus goes over to pray. He comes back, and they're napping. And he's like, get up. Can you not stay up with me for one hour? I'm like, good, good, go ahead. Goes over and prays again, comes back, and they're asleep again. And again. Three times. That's a statement against interest. Why would you want to admit that you couldn't stay up for an hour when Jesus was going through the most difficult part of his ministry, right before he was about to be crucified? How about the fact that Peter denied Jesus three times, once to a little girl, because he was afraid, because he was scaredy. How about the fact that James and John had their mommy come to Jesus and ask him if they could sit at his right and left hand. Mommy, will you go ask Jesus for us? That's embarrassing. And then the other disciples, when this happened, get all upset and, and bent out of shape, showing that they would have arguments with each other as opposed to being this like perfect 12 people following Jesus and like always happy and perfect and whatever. No, they were a mess. They were a wreck, and they admitted that. They admitted that. How about Noah getting drunk and naked? Right? How about King David, the great king of Israel, committing murder and adultery? How about the Israelites, the Hebrews in the land, committing all kinds of sins, walking away from God, and being defeated by their enemies and exiled? Why admit that? Why put that part in? Don't put that part in. Put the part in where we won the war. Don't put the part in where we lost. No, they put it all in. How about Saul, who became Paul, consenting to the death of Stephen? martyr, persecuting the church, calling himself the chief of sinners. Why admit this stuff? I'll give you a good, a good reason. Because it happened. They admit it because it happened and they cared more about being obedient to the inspiration of God and telling the truth than being embarrassed. That's why it's in there. That's why it's in there. And here's the thing. It's beyond just that. These guys went to often horrible deaths for these truths. John, the the disciple, actually made it, but he was boiled in oil. I don't know if you've ever been boiled in oil, but I think it's pretty uncomfortable. They expected him to die. He, He didn't. That's the story anyway. They died these deaths refusing to recant what they believed and what they had written. 
They would not come back and say it didn't happen. Now, listen, you do not die horribly painful deaths for things that you know to be false. When I was a kid and it looked like the paddle was coming out, Pops is getting that thing out, you know, getting, doing the whole thing that he used to do, <laughs> stretching out. Uh, uh, trust and believe. I was paying attention. I did not want the spankings. I would not have taken spankings for a lie. I mean, if I lied, I might have gotten a spanking. I would not protect a lie, something I knew not to be true, and take a spanking for it. Not even a spanking, let alone crucifying me, boiling me in oil, sawing me in half, or the kinds of things that the disciples faced. If I knew something to be a lie, when they start heating the oil up, I'm like, just kidding, JK. Right? You're like, no, I'm not going to go in the oil for this if it's not true. But it was true. It is true. That's why we believe the word. That's why we follow the word. That's why we live the word. The Bible is intricate and complex and beautiful. And it's our job to study it and to understand it and to apply it faithfully and obediently. Regardless of our own desires, regardless of our own little pet interpretations that we'd like so we can make everybody happy, we have to take the Bible as what it is, as our authority for faith and practice, and we have to follow it faithfully because it is the very word of God. And we've said it before, and Lord willing, we'll say it again, it takes faith to believe in God. It takes faith to believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It also takes faith to not believe in God. It also takes faith to believe that the Bible is just a bunch of stories written by people randomly that happen to foretell the future all the time, that people were willing to die for, and all the rest of this. All of these things take faith. You have to have faith to please God. In Hebrews 11.6, it says this, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Pleasing God takes faith. But providentially for you, five verses earlier, faith is defined, and this is written. Now, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What is faith? The substance of the things you're hoping for, the evidence Evidence of the things not seen. Now, why is the word faith and the word evidence being used together? Because if you watch uh, the, a lot of the atheists who talk these days, they act like those things are completely different. There's uh, those of us who believe in evidence, and there's those people over there who believe in faith. Nonsense. Evidence of the things not seen. What is the evidence of the things that aren't seen? The things that are seen. The things that are seen. In every case, everything that you believe, there's a step of faith. And the evidence of things that are not seen is the things that are seen. If I see a tree, I know the roots are there. Can I see the roots? No, I can't see the roots. But I know the tree would fall down without them. Evidence of the things that aren't seen is a thing that is seen. Now, in Scripture, I did not see God inspire the writers of Scripture. I wasn't watching that happen. But what have I seen? What have I seen? I've seen the internal beauty and consistency of the Bible written by dozens of authors, completely different people, over 1,500 years, 66 books, uniformity of thought, consistency, harmony, 
in that book. I have seen the prophecies, impossible mathematically, to have come to fruition unless God had been involved in the Bible, unless he had inspired the Bible. I've seen the eyewitnesses who made all kinds of statements against their own interests and were willing to die for what was in the scriptures. What have I seen? All of that. Now, what's that? That's evidence for things I can't see that God inspired the Bible. Right? There is a reason why so many thoughtful and intelligent people, some of the most intelligent and thoughtful people on this planet for thousands of years have believed that the Bible was in the inspired word of God because that is the most reasonable thing to believe about the Bible. Period. Period. And our God who inspired the writers of the Bible all those years ago is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's faithful. He's faithful. And you can believe it and you can trust it from the things that you can see. You can believe the things that you can't see. There's an old song that says, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's consistent. That's why the Bible's consistent. That's why it's harmonious. Yeah. It is from the truth of Scripture that we have our hope in an unchanging God who is able to save. There is so much hope in the Bible. We want you to have that. We want you to live in that hope. So many people, just like David Suchet, are out there and they're saying, what's real? I need direction. I need a path. There's something bigger than me. I know that, but I don't know what it is. And here comes scripture saying, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. You want a light to your path? Do what? Poirot did, the great detective. Find the scripture. Find the Bible. There's so much beauty in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I could not stand under the condemnation of my behavior and my sin unless I had scripture to hold on to and to know that I could be saved and to know that I could be forgiven and washed clean. I couldn't stand under it. The word of God sets me free. Now, when it comes to the Bible, some people hate it, some people love it, and some people just don't care. Let me start by saying, don't be one of those third people. Don't be a just don't care because there's something going on here. Hate it or love it, but love it, okay? But fight with it. Wrestle with it. Is it true? Discover what's there. Think through it. Don't just say, I don't care. My eternity doesn't matter. Whether love and, and justice and peace and God are real don't matter. All I care is about what I'm going to watch on Netflix tonight or what I'm going to put on Facebook or what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to drink. Satan wants you to be that person just kind of going through the thing, right? This is life. No. Love it or hate it. Do whatever you want, but struggle with it and wrestle with it because it will change you. It will change you. 
you gotta, you got to kind of fight with the Bible sometimes. you kind of got to let it, let it work, but you got to let it inspire you. you got to let it feed you. You've got to desire it. Let it be sweet and beautiful and life-giving. David talks about the law, and he's like, mmm, mmm, baby. That's good. It was like honey on my lips. I desire it. Day and night, I, want to come. I just want to get up in the morning, and I want to look in here, and I just want to be connected to you and close to you and to know your law and to see how beautiful it is and what you've made and how it works together, and it just inspires my soul. Meditate on the truth. Run to it. Run to it as you would run to your good father, the only truly good father. And fall in his arms through his word. Let it pour over you like health for your soul. Find rest in scripture. Find hope in the Bible, in God, in the Father, in the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let Jesus into your life through his word. You need to believe and be healed from all the things that bring you down, from all the things that seem to hold you in place and not let you go, from all the fear that keeps you from moving forward and the shame and the pain. Have you ever been hurt? You, you may be emotionally hurt. You know, you may, something horrible may have happened. You may be young, you may be old, you may have just skinned your knee. And you're hurt and you feel alone and you feel afraid. And you run to the arms of your father or your mother or your spouse or a friend or whoever it is. And, and in that embrace, there's comfort and there's peace. And it's, I know that this person loves me. I know that it's going to be okay. If you ever experienced that, you can experience that times, I don't know, whatever that number was earlier here. If you have never experienced that. My heart breaks for you, but I have good news. You can experience running into the arms of God right here in this book, in the scripture. You can know what that feeling is like to be comforted and loved by the Lord. And the nice thing about the scripture is as you memorize this, you take it into your heart, it's like that for you all the time. And when you go through those things, man, those verses, they're coming back to you. And they're washing over your soul with truth. The word of God is alive. It's alive. Listen, Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In Christ, you can experience that joy and comfort and the glory of the best relationship. The best Relationship, the one that you were literally designed for. It's that relationship with God. And man, does that get deep in the scripture. Now listen, if you're missing that relationship in your life, if you're missing that path, if you've not yet believed on Jesus Christ for salvation, for healing, let me just tell you something to start it out. He loves you. There's a reason why you're hearing this or there's a reason why you're here today. He loves you. And he wants you to have that experience. He wants to change and transform you. He wants you to let the living waters surge over you and clean you and create in you a new heart, a clean heart, a new, alive spirit. Listen to this. This is kind of both sides of it. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I would say all of us. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, and such was me. All of that and more. The worst The worst in the second half of this passage is what gives me hope and the ability to keep moving. It gives me hope in the future from from knowing all that I had to look forward to was condemnation and death to knowing that I have life and more abundantly and, and in this life. And that when I die, or if the Lord comes back and gets me, I can't even imagine because I has not seen nor ears heard nor has it even entered into the hearts of any of us how amazing the things are that God has prepared for us. Even though I was all these things. I was all these things. I had no business inheriting the kingdom of God but for Jesus Christ. And where did I find that? I found it in the word of God. Look, be justified. Be sanctified, be washed, be clean, be new, have a purpose, know your value. Know God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you've never done that, I'm going to ask that a couple of the elders, deacons come up and just kind of stand right over there. And when we have communion, if you just want to make your way over this way and just say, hey, look, I I just want Jesus. I believe it. I just want Jesus. I just want, I I can see that this is the path. They will help you through that process and help you to walk into that relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're already, if you're already a believer, man, don't forget about this thing. It gets dusty. I know. I know. I've gone through those times where it can kind of get a little dusty and it's kind of sitting over there and I kind of been busy. Oh, what are we keeping ourselves from? Life, truth. Mm, eat it. Let it, let it fill you. The word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It is how God is revealing himself to you in your life. Do not neglect it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that we get to see in your word this this story, this this history, this truth as it plays out from page one to the last page and in the future what's going to happen. As we see that it's all, it's all the fulcrum point is on you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that God would not look at us, so that we wouldn't be the ones who God's looking at in our own sin and all these things that we just read about, that is every one of us, a rebel, a sinner, adulterous in our hearts against you, Lord. And yet you have done everything everything necessary so that God doesn't look at us and see that, but rather looks to you and the price that you already paid and looks at us and says, you're innocent. You're clean. You're free. You're white as snow. Your sin has been removed from you as far as east is from west, and you can come in to rest and into the presence of God. God, thank you for that. God, just revive a fire in us for your word that we might become more like you, that we might go out into this place, into this town, into this city, into this country, into this world, wherever you call us, and that we might make much of your name, Jesus. And that by doing that, 
we would see miracles. We would see families change. We would see people change. We would see transformation. We would see fighting against and pushing back the darkness that's in this world. In your power and through the power of your word that's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, give us the strength and the power that comes from your word. Help us to see it for what it is. Help us to study it well, to understand it well, to interpret it well. Lord, but help us to help us to know you more. Lord, I pray for those who are going through things. I pray for the family of uh, Rosie Hansen, whose uh, memorial some of us were at yesterday. A life lived for you, Lord. A woman who's in your arms right now. A woman who you speak about exactly where she is in your scripture. That's how we know. And thank you for that comfort. And for all of us who have lost those. Lord, and for all of us who someday will die or be resurrected by you before we die and made new. Either way, we know what we have coming, and we know it's amazing, and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for those who are sick, who are struggling, who are going through things financially. I pray for marriages. I pray for relationships. I pray for our children, our young people who are going, going to school and going through these things and, and having to face a world that's so complicated and so difficult and every, and every second is trying to pull them into darkness or into nothing, into apathy. Lord, I pray that you'd ignite a fire in their hearts for you. God, you're so good. There's just so much that we could say this morning. But as you know, Lord, there's also football and things that, the other things that are great that you've given us to do. And we just, want to, we just want to stay in this spirit right now, going through this day, going through this week, and forever, Lord, let us stay this close to you and feel your power in our hearts. In your name, amen. Well, thanks for listening to our sermon. Again, this has been a sermon from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. If you did, you can subscribe to our channel as well as liking and commenting. We love to hear how these sermons are impacting you. You can also take a look at our podcast series that we have out. And we'll catch you again next week.